People first organizations will win in the future of work. Your only real asset is your people. We, we all, all want purpose-driven work. work. HR-led organization is I'm sorry, but leaders don't lead empty desks and empty shop floors. Welcome to the People Strategy Leaders Show. I'm your host, Sri Chalapa, founder and president of Engagedly, and a serial entrepreneur in technology, films, and music. This is where we talk to people leaders, business strategists, and organizational savants about leading in the time of change. What is working, what is not working, and more importantly, what we should be thinking about. Stick around to the end of the show. We will reveal how you can be our next guest. And now, let's engage. Hi, and welcome back. This is Sri Chalapa again with People Strategy Leaders Podcast. Um, today, we have an impressive guest, Ian Ziskin, who's the president of Excel Group, has 40 years of experience as a business leader, a board advisor, member, coach, consultant, entrepreneur, teacher, speaker, and author. Now, that's quite a, quite a mouthful, Ian. Um, and he's, he is the co-founder and partner of Business Insight Group, the co-founder of Consortium for Change, C4C and the co-founder of the Create Project. His impressive resume includes global leadership as a CHRO or other leadership role in three Fortune 100 companies, Northrop Grumman, Quest Communication, and TRW. He has a Master's of Industrial and Labor Relations from Cornell and is a magna cum laude from Binghamton University with a Bachelor's of Science in Management. Ian has also written dozens of articles, blogs, and book chapters in the future of work, HR, leadership, coaching, and HR's role with the board of directors. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Great to be with you, Sri. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what obviously piqued our interest when we were talking earlier was this uh, book that you guys wrote, um, which is really focused on transformational change. Um, so can you talk a little bit about you know, what prompted you and the team to write the secret sauce for leading transformational change? Yes, of course. Uh, thanks for asking about it. Uh, I think it was driven by a, a few things. First of all, uh, sitting there like uh, all of us in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, watching what was going on uh, around us in the world, it occurred to me that uh, the whole world was going through significant transformational change, not only directly related to COVID-19, but also economic uncertainty and work being disrupted as people were almost overnight uh, looking to work remotely. Same thing with school, uh, we were trying to figure out how to uh, educate uh, children uh, and college students uh, remotely as well. Uh, and, and even some of the political divide and discord that was going on around us. And it led me to start thinking about uh, how do you not only survive, but potentially thrive in circumstances of large-scale transformational change? So that was a, a big driver for us. The second thing was that um, I happened to lead a consortium of uh, independent coaches and consultants, many of whom are themselves experts in the area of leading transformational change. And uh, we wanted to put together a, a collaborative effort with a wide variety of different voices and lenses looking at this topic of transformational change and therefore decided to approach putting a book together uh, using that, that strategy rather than just have it be you know, Ian's singular view of the world 
uh, or singular view of leading transformational change. And that's how we got started with it. Okay, that's great. And you obviously have a, quite a few co-authors on this book. Um, so what makes this book different uh, from the other books around, you know, on the subject? Yeah, I think one thing uh, actually is in fact that, you know, most of the books that I've seen and read, uh, not only on this topic of transformational change, but uh, most other books, particularly business books, tend to be the product of one author, or maybe it's two or three authors that collaborate. Uh, and there's a lot of great books out there, obviously, that have been done uh, in that way. Uh, my orientation was a little bit more community-minded. I pretty quickly figured out uh, I likely wasn't smart enough to corner all the knowledge on leading transformational change. And so I wanted to surround myself with a lot of other very knowledgeable, passionate people on the topic. So I've grown fond of saying that the book is uh, 200 voices in under 200 pages uh, as a way of getting input from people who've contributed essays, uh, as well as interviews with senior leaders who themselves have led transformational change, as well as input from uh, a survey that we use to gather uh, expertise and input from people who had either led transformational change or been victimized by it in some way. Mm -hmm. So in addition to my own voice, there's a couple of hundred other people's voices baked into that. I think that makes it uh, unique. The other aspect, in, in my humble opinion, that makes it unique is uh, what I mentioned a minute ago about it being you know under 200 pages. I, it seems like from what I hear and what I see in talking to lots of other people, it's getting more and more difficult for, for people to read books uh, these days. So the 350 or 400 page book that many people used to sit down long enough to read, uh, they rarely do anymore. So if we could be brief, focused, to the point, very practical and pragmatic with the uh, lessons learned and advice that we're offering, uh, I figured that would be a win for everyone as well. That's what I think differentiates it primarily. Okay. Yeah, I mean, when you have that many authors, you know, you had almost what, 35 authors. Yeah. Know, what were the interviews and essays? Yes, that's right. That's a lot of work trying to coordinate um, everybody and then try to get some kind of a common voice. So what are the, you know, what are the, some of the challenges that you encountered and what are some of the advantages that you talked about, but also disadvantages in putting a, a project of this magnitude together? Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of a cat herding exercise to a certain degree, but but if you're committed to diversity of thought and perspective, uh, what I found, despite the, the, the cat herding aspects of it, um, I was really pleased to see, even though I didn't know how it would turn out when we started, that, that there's both a wide variety of different perspectives some of which actually even disagree or conflict with one another, which I think mm -hmm. is healthy, you know, for people who are trying to learn about the topic of leading transformational change. But at the same time, despite the diverse perspectives, a, a very, very clear pattern of common themes and lessons learned and mistakes and how to avoid those mistakes also began to emerge as we were pulling the book together. So I feel uh, quite good actually that we we got a balance between different points of view which we were sh shooting for but also a uh, common perspective on a number of things that seem to work and not work you know related to leading transformational change 
So, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, you talked about early in the book about your father's illness and death. Um, how does that really affect you in terms of the experience and the influence it has in writing writing this book? I mean, that seems like a very important thing to, um, you know, go through, obviously, and being able to translate that into your own experience. Yeah, um, so it was kind of a pivotal time, you know, in, in my life. I was 11 when my father was... Um, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, although it, it took quite a while, especially in those days, for uh, the doctors to actually figure out what was wrong with him. You know, he went from being fine to bumping into walls and other previously mm. navigable objects, you know, in a relatively short period of time. And then over about a two-year period of time, uh, had a lot of ups and downs in his health related to multiple sclerosis and eventually passed away uh, two years after being diagnosed, I was 13 at the time. He was just shy of his 47th birthday. So, you know, anybody who's been through that type of experience of, you know, losing a parent or having a parent become uh, seriously ill, you know, would recognize that that in and of itself is a fairly traumatic, life-changing kind of uh, experience mm -hmm. to go through. A couple of takeaways for me, uh, both then and even more recently as I was writing the book was the recognition that, first of all, you're not in control of the circumstance, right? There, there mm -hmm. are things that are happening to you that you don't really control. So it's really much more about how you respond to and learn from the situation, right. whether or not you can control or even change the situation. And so therefore, for me, one of the big life lessons was uh, you know, can you take a circumstance like this, come out of it, uh, despite the negative aspects of it, with uh, being a better person, you know, with a higher degree of self-awareness of what really matters in the world. Uh, and then even as it relates to the idea of leading transformational change, which of course is what the book is about, uh, one of the things I write, you know, related to this story was it led me to the conclusion that probably the single most important question related to transformational change in your life or in your organization is answering the question from what to what, because you're, right. you're now faced with a circumstance of things you can't change. Uh, some negative stuff has happened. You're trying to figure out how you're going to learn and grow and make some, some lemonade out of lemons, if you will. Uh, and you want to make sure that you focus on what got you to where you are at this point, what needs to be preserved that's actually pretty good so that you don't mess that up uh, in, the, in the process of, of making big changes happen, but then focus on the, the future and where you're heading and what you need to do differently and better uh, in order to get um, you know, your life back on track or uh, if you're thinking about it in an organizational context, how you uh, help your organization be more effective. Even at the age of 13, that kind of stuck with me. And so, you know, here we are, uh, you know, 50 years ago, this all happened. Mm -hmm. uh, last year was the 50th anniversary of my father's death, but that life lesson has stuck with me uh, all this time. And that's why I included it in the book because I think it's directly related to the concept of your role in leading transformational change. You have to understand, you know, where are we coming from? 
uh, and where are we going to? And a lot of a lot of leaders, frankly, don't do that very well. I think typically they they skip over where we've been and they're they're focused on where we're trying to get to without understanding how it compares with or is different from or more importantly better than uh, where we were previously. Okay, um, so talk about the what to what. You know what what is you know you just mentioned people don't necessarily look at what got us here. Uh, why is that important as you're planning where do you need to go next? I think the most important reason that understanding where you're coming from matters is uh, there's a big gap between doing things differently and doing them better. I think a, mm -hmm. lot, a lot of people make the mistake as they put change efforts into effect uh, that they're almost satisfied if they can declare the way we're doing it now is different than the way you know the previous leader used to do it or the way the organization used to do things. Somehow different is equated with better. Uh, you really can't determine whether it's better. You don't have the metrics in place or a basis of comparison if you, if you don't have a good feel for what the organization was doing before and what was right. working well before and what wasn't working well before. So establishing that baseline, whether it's around personal individual improvement or whether it's improving something for your team or whether it's improving something for the organization as a whole or even uh, at a societal level, you have to understand where you're coming from in order to know whether you've made progress going forward. And I think a lot of leaders, frankly, and a lot of organizations as well, uh, skip over that part because it's not as sexy and interesting. What they want to focus on is, you know, what are we going to do differently in the future? But, you know, one of the biggest mistakes you can make is to equate difference with improvement because they're not the same. Yeah, especially if you're a new leader in an organization, the instinct sometimes can be to throw their baby with the bathwater and throw everything away when you realize there are a lot of good things that are being done and maybe you should keep those and, and, and look at things that you can do better. Yeah, because there are certain things that got you here, you know, as a person right. or, or as an organization, you, you got to this spot by doing certain things well. To your point, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater uh, in the spirit of, of large scale change. It's very easy to, to throw things out without even realizing it uh, that we're actually working quite well and you don't want to mess that up. So in this book, you know, you talk about seven competing priorities or paradoxes. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on that and and why why they matter? Well, in this book, I, I talk about this issue, challenge, I think, of of leading change, where it, a lot of it's about reconciling competing priorities mm -hmm. and mastering paradox. What I ended up calling it was uh, the beauty of and, right? Rather than falling into the trap of, uh, it's either or. And there, in the book, I talk about seven of these paradoxes. I won't talk about all of them uh, here, but let's just pick a couple of examples to illustrate the point. So one of these paradoxes is the importance of facts and feelings. So uh, first, the facts, right? You know, most organizations tend to try to justify the need for uh, significant transformational change based on some data, some facts that reinforce the fact that we've got to do something differently or better. Uh, extremely important. And the only problem with it is that I think most of us as people 
have this uh, enormous capacity for dismissing or deflecting or minimizing facts that don't necessarily reinforce our preferred view of the world uh, and the right, external, right. external environment. We can explain it away. Uh, I think the, the, the technical scientific term for all that is human nature. Yes, yes. And confirmation yeah. bias, right? Really, really yeah, of course. Yeah. And so, you know, facts are really important in, in trying to determine the need for and the justification for and the rationale for uh, significant change. But it turns out, uh, because we are human beings, feelings actually matter a lot. You know, in the one example I, I give in the book is, you know, a lot of people are focused on uh, losing weight. You know, they get on the scale and the data is undeniable. You know, we're looking, right. at, we're looking at the data and it says, you know, we were 10 pounds uh, heavier than we might prefer to be. Uh, however, just getting on the scale and looking at the data will not actually drive change. Uh, you know, you're smart enough to know, we all are, uh, some combination of diet and uh, exercise and maybe some other lifestyle changes uh, are generally what's required in order to lose the 10 pounds. Um, but whether or not you actually take those actions of diet and exercise and stick with it and lose the 10 pounds really has a lot more to do with what's inside of you, your head, your heart, uh, how committed are you to it? Uh, how passionate are you about making that change? Getting on the scale, looking at the data isn't gonna make any difference if you don't commit yourself to it with a sense of purpose. And that's why it's really important in leading transformational change to be able to reconcile the facts with the, uh, the feelings. That's one of the paradoxes. Uh, another example that I'll give uh, would be speed and rhythm. Mm -hmm. so, so most leaders would say, we uh, want to accelerate the pace of change, create a sense of urgency, move faster than we've historically moved. And I think that's that's actually right. I think in order to get the kind of traction we need in leading transformational change, uh, we got to be comfortable with moving faster than uh, typically feels comfortable. Comfortable, right. right? Uh, however, in order to do that well and also bring everybody else along with you, uh, generally speaking, you also have to have a certain pace and a certain cadence with a certain rhythm to get everybody on the same page and well aligned. Uh, I play a little bit of guitar. I think about it in terms of music and musicians. You know, it's very infrequent that a musician would say, a song is improved simply by playing it faster and mm -hmm. get, getting to the end more quickly. You, you also have to play the song with a certain rhythm so that everybody else who's part of the band uh, is on the same sheet of music, uh, operating in some degree of harmony, playing off of each other, uh, which makes for much more beautiful music. So in this, in this paradox that we're trying to reconcile, you know, speed without rhythm is basically just noise. You know, speed at the appropriate rhythm uh, also makes for beautiful music and successful transformational change. Uh, and that's probably a second example of uh, one of these paradoxes that needs to be reconciled and appropriately addressed uh, if you're mm -hmm. going to successfully lead transformational change.
Yeah, 100%. You know, if people are not dancing to the same beat, then you're going to have a lot of chaos in the, in the organization and discontent um, as well. So, you know, um, there are certain things uh, in the book that you talk about, but like one of the ch chapters in the book is called Don't Do It. So obviously some of the things you, a lot of books talk about do it this way, but there are things that you learn from mistakes. So what are these don't do it mistakes that um, especially the leaders should be wary of? Yeah, I'm a firm believer and became even more so a firm believer in putting this book together that while it's great to tell people what they should do, mm -hmm. It's also important sometimes to point out what you should not do before you uh, focus on what you should do. Again, just a couple of examples of uh, you know the don't do it's right. So, so one of them would be don't make people feel stupid or disloyal if they push back or ask questions about the change that's being asked. Of them, I think our natural tendency is to say, you know, particularly as a leader, we articulate this need for change. We want people to be enthusiastic about it, big supporters, salute, and you know, come along for the important journey. And while that expectation is is right in a lot of ways, there's tremendous value sometimes that gets lost by ignoring or diminishing or dismissing or marginalizing the people who actually ask tough questions. Right. And are a bit skeptical, you know, where, where they're essentially, uh, you know, helping to seek the truth about, you know, what, what are we really trying to do here and why is it so important? And I think you end up with a better end product, you know, a better result, a better process too uh, of leading big change if you're more welcoming of, accepting of the people who push back and ask tough questions. So if you put a lot of energy into making them feel dumb for asking those questions or try to make them seem disloyal because they're mm -hmm. asking those tough questions, that's actually very counterproductive, I, I would have to say. Um, the other example I'll offer here, we were just talking about uh, a minute ago, so I, I want to reinforce it, which is this idea of ignoring data that doesn't reinforce our preferred view of the internal or external environment. I think individuals, but maybe even more so uh, large organizations in particular, have this amazing capacity to dismiss and ignore data. So a lot of times, you know, change comes at us. Uh, I actually think there's a misconception about change, which I talk about in the book. And that is, you know, most people tend to think that good transformational change is really all about uh, anticipating, seeing around corners, understanding mm -hmm. what's coming at us, uh, being well prepared for what's coming at us. And therefore, by definition, that is um, somehow thought of as strategic. There's plenty of great examples of being anticipatory and strategic and leading change. But I actually think there's a lot more examples of we didn't see it coming. We didn't anticipate it. 
it was circumstances beyond our control. We weren't very well prepared for it, yet we had to somehow react uh, and do something. And sometimes it is a complete surprise, mm-hmm. but, but I think there are many times when the data is out there, it's floating around, it's in smaller chunks, we're not really paying attention to it, mostly because it doesn't fit with our preferred view of the world. Yeah. So we tend to ignore it and then we get, you know, get whacked in the face. Uh, one of my favorite quotes related to this, Mike Tyson, uh, the heavyweight yes. boxer, you know, he was being interviewed in advance of a, of a heavyweight bout that he was about to fight. And um, the interviewer was asking about his, you know, his strategy for the fight. And basically he said, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And I think that's really true for individuals, but organizations as well, we're, we're getting punched in the mouth, you know, constantly by big surprises. COVID is a really good example of this. And then you have to figure out how you're going to survive and thrive and, and make it all work, despite the fact you didn't necessarily see it coming. So, you know, don't ignore the data just because it doesn't fit your preferred view. That would be a, another don't do it. Yeah, no, those are, those are some really good ones, Ian. Um, so last, you know, a couple of more questions here that I, I wanted to ask you about. One is for this pizza thing. So it's called Pizza Analogy. And there's a book. I mean, there's a chapter in your book called Pizza Analogy. Can you talk about what pizza has got to do with transformation yeah, we, change? We, we kind of asked this question of, um, you know, what the blank does uh, pizza have, with, have to do with leading transformational change? And it turns out uh, a lot. Uh, so he, here's my way of thinking about it, this pizza analogy that you're referring to. Uh, you know, go back a lot of years, you know, 997 AD in Gaeta, Italy. That's when pizza was thought to be invented. So that's a lot of years ago with a lot of tradition. Uh, it's now, you know, $150 billion global industry. Uh, there's a lot of people who love pizza uh, around the world. However, here's the interesting thing. If you think about, despite all the traditions and what we tend to think about with pizza, and you look at the changing nature of um, shapes, sizes, toppings, cheeses, crusts, uh, preparations of how pizza gets prepared, uh, distribution outlets of where you can get pizza from, uh, and of course, the evolving nature of all the the secret sauces that go along with pizza, uh, you know, pizza is no longer pizza. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's evolved in a multitude of ways, all in the effort of trying to stay relevant to uh, the consumer, despite the fact that there are a lot of external and internal uh, factors and trends that are challenging the the industry you know and right. the food itself and so you know the reason why this became so important in my mind was you know every individual every organization has a, a similar set of challenges with uh falling in love with you know history and tradition and the way it used to be and what we prefer it to be but the recognition in fact that uh if you want to be relevant You've also got to reimagine, reinvent, reposition yourself, your team, your organization, uh, and maybe even the society that you're part of in order to continue to be relevant. It's true with pizza and it's true uh, with leading transformational change. And one of my favorite quotes around this was, you know, believe in yourself, 
if cauliflower can become pizza, you can become anything. Uh, right. I think it's a great way of, of illustrating how things have to continue to evolve if they're going to remain relevant. Yeah. Well, uh, that's all the time we have, Ian, but I wanted to just do a shout out for your book. It's called The Secret Sauce of Leading Transformation Change. So Ian, where can they find this book and uh, where should they learn more about you? Uh, best one-stop shop for the book is uh, www.transformationalchangebook.com where people can find uh, not only access for uh, purchasing the book at a discount, but uh, some chapter summaries and background bios and all the contributing authors, uh, as well as um, the opportunity if they'd like to uh, schedule some speaking engagements related to the book. And they can also learn more about me uh, right there as well. And uh, Sri, I really appreciate you making the time for me today. It's been great to be with you. All right. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Ian. It's, it's been a, a wonderful to have you on. I need to get, get you back on here to talk about some of your background and experience and leading transformation change at your organization that you've been part of. So I look forward to having you back again in the future. Thank Great you again. You. Thanks. Shri Chalapa here. Thank you so much for listening to the People Strategy Leaders Podcast. If you are a successful leader or a people strategist who would like to be on this program, please visit engagedly.com slash people strategy leaders podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media? If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag people strategy leaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Sri Chalapa. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. And thank you to Patrick Ramsey, sound engineer at Kalinga Production Studios for recording and mixing this show.